You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading is 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord." Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it... (coughs) should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul and not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in luxurious scarlet, 
who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Our New Testament reading is from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we turn again to your word. We ask, Lord, that you would cause your word to bear fruit in our lives, to bear fruit in our city, to bear fruit among the nations of the earth. God, that we would learn as David learned, that we would learn as your son learned. Uh, We would become those who show honor where honor is due, um, who are faithful to your law, um, and who treasure your steadfast love. In your name we pray. Amen. So now, a year and a month or two later, we have arrived at 2 Samuel. This is very exciting. Um, and, uh, and so I want to kind of set the stage of where we are and, uh, and then um, get into how 2 Samuel opens. Um, one of the interesting things about the book of Samuel, uh, again, you shouldn't see it as two separate books, but as one book. Um, that was conveniently split in half uh, by Bible makers. Um, and uh, the, the book of 1 Samuel, if you remember, it opens with a song from Hannah. On the book of 2 Samuel, uh, this midpoint in the narrative of Samuel uh, then opens with another song, this time from David. And then uh, the very end of 2 Samuel will conclude with a final song from David. In other words, one of the ways, one of the organizing, uh, structurally organizing principles at the heart of this book is singing. Um, singing is, uh, marks kind of the movement of where this whole, this whole thing is headed. Uh, Hannah's song uh, sets kind of a paradigmatic vision for what God is up to in the book of Samuel. So if you ever get confused uh, about what's happening in these pages, it is very, very important, very, very helpful to go back to Hannah's song and, and realize that her song there at the very, very beginning um, sets up for us uh, the work that God is unfolding, oftentimes in surprising ways, uh, in the rest of Samuel's book. When we come uh, now to this song at the middle, David's song, we have a lamentation, a song of grief and mourning over the death of Saul and Jonathan, and this, um, the singing of this song uh, marks a turning point in the whole book of Samuel, but it's a surprising turning point. Um, you see, what's been going on from the beginning of 1 Samuel, we looked at this a lot of week, uh, last week, 
um, as we studied kind of the, the spiral of Saul's life and sin and rebellion against God. And what you would expect to find here about midpoint in the story is that God had been laying the groundwork, kind of building things up slowly. Uh, and we would think that things are going to move along at a nice steady rate, steady pace up and to the right. But where we actually find ourselves at the beginning of 2 Samuel is all of the gains that, that occurred under Samuel and Saul have now been reversed. And so for the whole of 1 Samuel, uh, we're plodding along, we're seeing these, this land taken by the Philistines, restored, we're seeing um, maybe temp, uh, the, the worship of Yahweh and the temple will be, in uh, the tabernacle will be restored. Uh, but now when we come to the end of 1 Samuel, the, the, the lands and the cities that have been regained and retaken from the Philistines um, have been handed back over to them. Israel's army has been routed, routed to such a degree uh, that people are fleeing from the border with the Philistines. Uh, and it, it might, you might be tempted, knowing the story of David, having been familiar with the story of David, to miss some of the political nuance of what's happening right here. What, what right is happening at the beginning of 2 Samuel is a political crisis. David is not from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's the royal tribe. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. What's likely to happen is the, the, the unification of Israel that had taken place under the rule of Saul and under the guidance of Samuel. Samuel's now dead. Saul is now dead. And now you have David coming into his own to take the throne and it is not self-evident. In fact, one of the things that we're going to see, the early chapters of 2 Samuel are all about moves that David is making politically. Now, they just so happen to be really good moves um, in terms of righteousness and in terms of what's the right thing to do. But they're also very savvy politically. Um, he's doing certain things to avoid civil war. He's doing certain things to hold the country together, the tribes of Israel together, right off the bat, right at the beginning. And it's actually going to start um, here in chapter 1 with uh, the killing of the Amalekite and the song that he wants to be taught to everyone throughout the land of Israel. So that's where we are. Um, we begin with a song. But we also begin with a song given to us by a man who's as different from Saul as one can get. It's a contrast that's been played up already throughout the whole of 1 Samuel. Um, and that same contrast will be there throughout 2 Samuel. Saul was placed on the throne, placed in the role of king, having gone through no preparations to become king. Um, he did not endure exile. He did not endure service. He was simply placed on the throne. But David is a man who's been trained He's a man who's been through the death of exile, of rejection, of temptation, of service, and is now prepared to lead as God's king. Um, Peter Lighthart talks about Saul being a king of the earth, like the kings of the other nations, exalted in power, and that power went straight to his head. Uh, David is a man who has gone through death and resurrection, which is how all of God's kings um, are always brought to their thrones. Death and then resurrection. And so now we come to David and this story. 
So uh, this story is fascinating, particularly knowing what we know from 1 Samuel 31 and, and what unfolded in 1 Samuel 31. So we have the narrator telling us what took place, um, and then now we have in 2 Samuel chapter 1 an Amalekite. You should always keep in mind the Amalekites are terrible. It's just a, it's something you should live by. If you ever meet an Amalekite, they're terrible. Whatever they are, they show up on your doorstep. You should tell them you're a terrible person. Um, and so we have an Amalekite. Amalekite comes uh, after on the third day. I want you to take note of that there in verse 2. On the third day, a man from Saul's camp, an Amalekite, his clothes are torn, dirt is on his head. He's posturing himself as a mourner. He shows up um, with Saul's crown and Saul's armband, the sig- um, um, that which signified his rule and reign as king. Um, he shows up after three days in Ziklag where David has returned. If you'll remember from going and killing a bunch of Amalekites, uh, he is now back in Ziklag and an Amalekite shows up in mourning. He comes um, and says, tells David uh, what's taken place. Israel's army's been routed. Saul has been killed. Jonathan has been killed. Um, and David and the men around him's immediate response is to tear their clothes um, and to begin expressing their own grief. It's fascinating, the question that's asked, uh, the ESV translates it as, um, where is that? Oh, how did it go? Tell me. Um, In the Hebrew, this is the exact same question uh, that takes place at the beginning of 1 Samuel as Eli, um, as someone comes to report to Eli what takes place at the battle, um, exact same Hebrew phrase, tell me what happened. Um, there uh, was the Philistines routing Israel, and here, again, it is the, the Philistines routing Israel. This is a narrative clue. Um, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, when that question is asked, it was the end of a priestly house. Eli's sons are killed, and Eli dies there on the spot. Um, here, when David asks that question, it's not, it's not the end of a priestly house now. It is the end of a royal house, the end of Saul's house as the king. Um, He then tells a story, the Amalekite does, a story that we all know because we just read the previous chapter, is false. Amalekite tells a story that um, he just happened in the midst of this battle to come across Saul. Saul was wounded. Saul says, hey, I need you to kill me. Um, And so the Amalekite, out of the kindness of his heart, remember Amalekites don't do anything out of the kindness of their heart, they're terrible people. Um, He then kills Saul takes the crown, takes the armlet, and then brings it to David. Why does he tell this lie? Well, he tells this lie because everybody knows who David is, and everybody knows who Saul is. And if he can be the one that brings um, the, the crown and the news, and be the one that vanquished David's enemy, then there is probably going to be, in his mind, a payoff. Like I said, Amalekites are terrible people. Um, But I want you to notice first, to marvel at the patience of David. He doesn't even now, with the death of the king that's been trying to kill him, even now he doesn't leap at the throne. Even now, he doesn't grasp at the crown. Even now, he doesn't put his arm around this Amalekite and say, thank you for bringing me this news that I've been waiting to hear for so long. 
He sees the event for what it is and he mourns. His response is a just one. It's a virtuous one. It's a noble one. It's notable um, that Saul was judged earlier in 1 Samuel for sparing and then plundering the Amalekites. And 2 Samuel opens with Saul himself being plundered by an Amalekite. As Saul is being plundered by this Amalekite, David is out striking down. Again, um, in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, the Amalekites and taking what they have stolen from Israel. It's notable too, David's question, almost like surprise. How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? So so there's no recognition or sort of sympathy or empathy going on here. Like this Amalekite did something, but we can all understand why he did it. Saul was in anguish. He told us Saul was in anguish. The, the, the justice that, that David points to in this is how on earth could you strike out against the Lord's anointed? Now there's no way the Amalekite would know that, that David has had multiple opportunities to take up his hand against the Lord's anointed and didn't. But this is a big deal to David. Saul is not someone, whether he's being tyrannical or he's being noble, Saul is not someone that you lift your hand against. So David gives a summary judgment, calls him to be executed and declares your blood be on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying I have killed the Lord's anointed. And then the text turns to a song. The song is called The Bow. Um, and it's a song that David says should be taught, in verse 18 it says, should be taught to all the people of Judah. What David does in writing this song and then sending this song to be sung everywhere is both politically savvy and it's noble. Now, in our day and age, we rarely think of those two things going together. But David is going to do that for the next three chapters again and again and again. He's going to behave in ways for which there are massive political benefits. He's going to behave in ways that are just frankly wise, just on a real practical level. And he's going to do things that are good. It is tragic in our day. I'm not going to make this point later, so I just want to make it now. It is tragic in our day um, that for many of us, when we think about political moves, and I'm not just talking about national politics, I'm talking about um, power dynamics in the office. Power dynamics, yes, in the state house. Power dynamics anywhere. Um, we often think of them as being something separate from nobility, in virtue and obeying the law of God. 
But at the heart of the first three chapters, really into the end of chapter four, what we're going to see is David cuts with the grain of the universe. He, he, he walks in virtue, he walks in wisdom, and the result of that are massive political benefits. Things just go well for him as a result of the decisions he makes in these first few chapters. He doesn't just mourn. He, he issues a public judgment against the, one who killed, um, against the one who claims to have killed Saul. Two, he then writes a song that he wants everyone to sing that honors what can be honored about Saul. It's just smart. You see how it's smart? Benjamin is going to be upset, the whole tribe. And then those that would ally themselves with Benjamin are going to be upset. To have the throne, the, the leadership of Israel um, stripped away from this tribe is going to lead to all kinds of dissension and cracks um, that could tear Israel apart. So David's first step is not to seize power, not to claim the throne, um, not to come down and force everyone under his rule. His first step is to create space so that the whole nation can mourn. His first step is to honor the office that Saul held. His first step is to grieve before he begins to rule. But let's look at the song. The song is called The Bow. That song is sent to all the people of Israel. It opens uh, with the refrain, your glory, your beauty. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's also your gazelle. O Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And he doesn't want this news published um, among the uncircumcised, among the Philistines. He doesn't want rejoicing to come. Um, this is, I think, a... a a subtle point to be made of like, I'm not rejoicing over this. I want no one to rejoice over the death of Saul. He then, this turn of phrase in verse 21, it's a very interesting and striking one. Um, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Um, in ancient Israel, you carried a shield. That shield would oftentimes be covered with leather and that leather needed to be oiled. Um, it had a number of, uh, kept, the, kept the leather from cracking and shrinking. It kept the leather from uh, having all kinds of problems as you carried it. It also uh, made it shine, look good. Um, and secondly, it made weapons oftentimes glance off the, um, off the shield. What's interesting about this turn of phrase is this word, not anointed with oil, um, the shield of Saul. Uh, that, that word is the word for Messiah, the, the anointed one of Israel, the anointed king of Israel, um, and so the, the one way to read this text is, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul unmessiahed. Um, the, the anointing of God laid upon him has been removed. And then he follows a pattern in these last stanzas in which he moves from, uh, he moves from Jonathan, he moves from Saul to Jonathan and Saul, to Jonathan and Saul, to Saul, to Jonathan and Jonathan. And so there is uh, a focus in this text. Um, there's an acknowledgement of Saul and honoring of Saul where possible. Um, but ultimately, this drives at an honoring of Jonathan. Which is fascinating. Saul is a terrible king, tyrannical, murderous, 
disobedient to God. We looked at that last week. A, a, a rule and a reign and a life consumed with envy that gave way to bitterness, that gave way to murder, that gave way to all manner of trouble. But none of that comes up in this song. Instead, where he can, he honors Saul. And the primary ground of that honor is Jonathan. And we talked about early, it's been several chapters, several months, a long time, a long time, um, since we saw Jonathan. Jonathan is held up in 1 Samuel as a noble character. Saul is a terrible father, and Jonathan is a virtuous son. What's interesting even about the dynamics, the the father-son dynamics throughout Samuel are interesting. Um, Eli, somewhat noble man with two wicked sons. Samuel, a good father with wicked sons. Saul, a wicked father with good sons. Jonathan, um, and uh, by adoption of sorts, David. David in this song, this song of mourning, grounds his honoring of Saul in the fact that Jonathan fought alongside him. Um, I I do want to mention this just because it it comes up increasingly often in our day and age. uh, In verse 26, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. It is only in an over-sexualized age like ours that that could be read as some sort of homoerotic testament from David. That comes up often, by the way, um, from those trying to defend homosexuality from the scriptures. Um, the, the, The point here has nothing to do with sexuality and everything to do with the kind of bond formed in a warrior society when men fought in close quarters and battled alongside one another, cared for one another, oftentimes took um, wounds on behalf of those standing next to them. Um, David's not um, expressing some sort of um, erotic love for Jonathan. He's simply testifying that here was a man who was as a brother to him, a man who he loved deeply. Uh, It is a sad commentary on the state of male friendships um, that we can't read that without seen something as being romantic. The point David is making is here is someone I love and this one that I love is dead. So what do we do with this opening, this beginning? I want to make just some observations and some considerations about it and then we'll be done. We live in a day and age that often buys into, and I would say this is particularly predominant among Christians and maybe even more predominant among Christians living in a place like Denver. We live in a culture in our city that is obsessed with not upsetting anyone. I'm not being too extreme. Um, I've, I've always uh, found that Christians here uh, approach Christianity like a nice leisurely pastime. Um, You go to church on Sundays, you have your nice social relationships, and then you go and you live the rest of your life however you want. And so um, in a place like Denver, uh, to to name the the reality of good and evil, to, to talk about the severity, the horror of the nature of God's judgment, well, you just don't do that. 
There are Christians who might believe that the judgment of God is real and true, but it's certainly not something we should emphasize. Um, Those are the uglier parts of the Bible, the less honorable parts of the Bible. Um, We should cover those things over and not make them a central part of the story. But the reality is, is like just the, the prevalence of God's judgment against the Amalekites throughout the book of Samuel should strike us. The severity of a man who, who, who didn't kill Saul but would strip Saul of his crown and his armband and would even have the gall to, to, to lie about killing Saul in order for some, uh, to gain some sort of political foothold. Um, uh, that is condemned quickly and swiftly and there is nothing in the text to indicate that David did anything wrong in having this man executed. One of the things that... that, that we've got to learn to be, not, not, maybe not comfortable with, but we've got to get into our bones as part of the, the very framework which with the Bible comes to us and which, through which we're supposed to understand and perceive the world is that there is real good and there is real evil and there is real, terrible, horrifying judgment promised by God against the wicked. And for many of us, we're so concerned about not sounding like a fire-breathing fundamentalist. I just had that thought as I said that, like, oh, I sound like a fire-breathing fundamentalist. I don't want to be a fire-breathing fundamentalist. But I want to be biblical. I want to understand the world biblically. And, and, And the myth of a kind of World peace, if everyone can be nice and we just get along and everybody love each other, it's a myth. A myth carried by secularists and a myth carried by nice evangelical Christians who don't want to upset anyone. But the judgments of God are terrible. And God has issued a judgment against the Amalekites all the way book back in the book of Exodus. They as a people stood condemned by God. His judgments are fierce. We have to learn the rhythms and the smell, even the aesthetic of the Bible. Oh, there is grace and there is mercy. But unless you see that grace and mercy alongside the severities of of God's judgment and his wrath, you will minimize the nature of God's mercy and his grace. It will become just general sweetness rather than the salvation and redemption of God, his people, away from the wrath that they're running after. And so first, do not underestimate or downplay the judgments of God. Do not begin to believe subtly in the modern myth of a sweet, we can all just get along in the name of love. Believe the world of the Bible. God has enemies and you do not want to be his enemy. Please hear that. God has enemies. And you do not want to be his enemy. 
And the glory of the gospel is you don't have to be his enemy. But do not for a second make the jump from Christ has borne the sins of all those who will cling to him, who will renounce their sins and put their hope in Jesus. Do not for a moment reduce that to mean that God is just nice. His judgments are terrible. His mercy is sweet and it is sweet because it saves us from his judgments. Two. Honor and grief where honor and grief are due. The the reality is like one of the things that has been developing in David throughout 1 Samuel is a is a is a patience a willingness to, long, to, to suffer long. There's no need in him to seize or to grab. Um, the, the, we saw him cut Saul's robe and repent. Um, we saw uh, David almost go and kill uh, the, the foolish man with the flocks and, and is stopped. We saw David uh, take from Saul as an act of uh, mercy his, his spear, showing him that he could have killed him, but actually saving Saul from those around David that would have killed him. We've seen David uh, now demonstrating an ability to simply be patient and wait upon the Lord, and this saves the kingdom in this chapter. He, he doesn't lash out. He doesn't go on a tirade in the next few chapters, attacking Saul's family, um, kind of securing for himself the throne. No, he does the exact opposite, provides safety for Saul's relatives. He doesn't want to go to war. Um, um, he mourns Saul. He even honors Saul, a tyrannical, horrific leader who tried to kill him. He shows him honor. And this is good, and he honors Saul on the basis of Jonathan. Whatever may have been terrible about Saul, Jonathan fought at his side. This deserves honor. David draws attention to that which must be honored in the end, not that which warranted God's judgment. I think there's something to learn here about how we're to honor our mothers and our fathers. Something to learn here about how we're to honor those in authority. It's not to seize, it's not to grab, um, it's not to um, throw fits. It is to patiently pursue faithfulness to God, to resist. Um, one of the things notable about David's relationship with Saul is all along the way he resists Saul's sin. He resists Saul's tyranny and honors Saul and refuses to lift his hand against Saul. We, we, we must learn how to live in that tension, to honor um, and resist, all at the same time. To show deference and to name sin. And oftentimes, um, we, we hear the call in the, in the, in the Old Testament law um, that we are not, that, that we're to honor our mother and our father. And sometimes, um, all we see, in fact, we're trained to see in our culture, is the flaws of our mother or father. All the problems we've arrived at, um, I can hear now the parents of teenagers very excited about this portion. Um, we look at our parents and all we see is the flaws and how um, I'm in the situation I'm in and I'm in the problem I'm in because of 
um, how tyrannical my father was or how absent my father was or how terrible my mother was. Um, but, but notice here, David simply persists in faithfulness, refuses to fall into sin, and everywhere he can, he honors Saul. And don't miss for a moment that Saul was a pretty awful person. And yet David shows honor. Third and next to last, I promise. Learning the bow. The center of this song is an emphasis on Jonathan. And David calls all the people to learn the song, to sing the song. May the children, may all the people learn the song of Jonathan. Jonathan is the bow. He was known as a bowman um, and was quite good. If you remember, that's how he warns David uh, earlier in 1 Samuel. There is a call in this song as David sends it out to be among the people that we would learn to be like Jonathan, his valor, his warriorness, his faithfulness. Um, this is a call, I believe, for us to learn the bow. That we live in a world where battle is still necessary. We have the promise of peace, but for now, it is essential that we learn to fight, we learn to be marked by virtue, by valor, by faithfulness, just as Jonathan was. This song honors Saul, but more than anything, it honors and points to the beauty of Jonathan, the goodness of what Jonathan was, a man of virtue, a man of honor, and a man who knew how to handle a bow. This song calls and creates a culture in Israel of be those who learn the bow, lead those who learn to make war, be those who learn to live with valor and virtue. And what's interesting is they are in a low place militarily. They've just been routed by the Philistines. So buried in this song is pointing to a man who was filled with honor, filled with virtue, and was a fierce warrior and calling Israel to, to to, to build that culture into who they are as a people. It's also a song of hope. We've been routed. Our king and his son have been killed. But may we become more like this son, even as we've faced defeat. Don't forget that when Saul went to war, no one had any weapons. Early in 1 Samuel, David is preparing his people to go back to war. And last, it's interesting in this text, the emphasis again on the third day, there in verse two. David remained two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp. Um, here is another low point in the history of Israel. Desolation, the king is dead, the king's noble son is dead. Land has been lost. The army has been lost. And it is precisely here on the third day that Israel is being reborn. It's precisely here at this low point. This point of death, 
this point of seeming destruction, this, this point at which Israel herself had been run over by the Philistines, and it is precisely here that God intends to answer the song of Hannah. We always want things to go the way we think they should go, up and to the right. Like, maybe the kingdom passes to David, I don't know, before Saul becomes such a tragic character. Maybe after his, you know, his three sins, then the the kingdom can go to David and David can begin to rule. And and then there's kind of a, a, there's there's a kind of flattening in the storyline of Samuel, but then David comes and he picks the thing up. But that's not how God works. They go, they build, they build, they build, they build. And then he lets them get crushed all the way back to the beginning. And then in the midst of that death, God reestablishes um, the kingdom. There, God, God establishes David and brings him to his throne. Know the pattern of God's stories. It is always death before resurrection. It is always death and destruction before life. Here God is tearing down the strong and the rich and raising up the humble that they might rule, that God's name would be established, that his kingdom would be built. And this is the story of David. This is the work of God in the world even now. Yes, he brings death, but out of death always resurrection. Let's pray.